I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we start off with the weekend review. What TV shows and movies we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion or review. And then finish up with film faves. Our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, we are finally catching up with Portrait of a Lady on Fire by Celine Siama, which has been on Hulu for I think about uh, two months at this point. Came out late last year, was a huge critical darling. And tying into that, Film Phase will be counting down our favorite lgbtq plus movies so this will be an interesting episode but first let's start off with the weekend review shanna i have not had any opportunity to have time alone to watch anything on my own but you have have you watched anything you want to share with us yeah so i checked out hulu's little fires everywhere and it has been a glorious eight-episode show. Really? And I think it's wonderful. They have several different producers, so obviously starring Kerry Washington and Reese Witherspoon, and they are producers sometimes. But alternatively, there's Lynn Shelton and Liz Tigelar, uh, Lauren Neustadter. I'm pretty sure that I'm not saying that right. It might Neustadter. be Neustadter. Neustadter, yeah. I can't help but try Are you familiar with her? English Afrikaans accent. <laughs> no, I, I'm uh-huh. not. Okay. But when I saw Lynn Shelton, I got terribly excited. And what I started doing with my mom is she had watched the first three episodes in South Africa. And then I caught up and then we watched the fourth episode on the same day. And we got to chit chat about it. And that was really fun. So the show is about two different families. Reese Witherspoon, her family, Kerry Washington, her family. They both have different kinds of lives. They both have different kinds of income, different kinds of jobs. And it's really interesting. Lots of different things happen in the show. It is a difficult one to explain without giving anything away. So the best I can say is in the first 10 20 minutes of the first episode you have Kerry Washington and her daughter in a car they obviously live in their car they're trying to find a place to rent they've just moved from another state and they're they're trying to find this place that has a really good school they're trying to find a place to live Reese Witherspoon sees them calls it in I believe eventually rents to Kerry Washington, rents uh-huh. her rental to Kerry Washington and offers her work and stuff like that. Reese Witherspoon is a somewhat journalist in this show and a busybody as she has been for the past, what, five years in TV. Okay. Like You're referring to like Big Little Lies yeah, and such? Yeah. And then Kerry Washington is this fantastic, uh, when you use different pieces of uh, art, I can't remember what it's called, but she's an artist and she creates these wonderful pieces that sell for a fortune and it's fantastic. Okay. But, you know, they have different lives and you find out why they have different lives and how one's life could have gone one way and one's life could have gone the other way. And it's 
really a fantastic story over eight episodes. And what did you like about it? Well, I like the drama of it all. This oh, It also takes place in the 90s. It's a great show about motherhood. Something that you see in the trailer is, you know, Reese Witherspoon's obviously having this discussion or argument with Kerry Washington, and she's like, I made good choices, and Kerry Washington says, no, you had good choices. Uh We're looking at about four to six mothers in total in this show, Mm. Uh, and it's also about womanhood. They talk about the vagina monologues, and that's a really fun thing Mm. to see 90s women try to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, I really like it. I like the relationships the teenagers have, the kids of these two families. It sounds like it could be quite the dialogues, the conversation starter. Uh, Would you say it's as good as Big Little Lies or those kinds of shows? I would have to watch Little Fires again to be able to tell you, but I do go to Big Little Lies when I'm feeling like I need big drama. I think I would go to this one to find empowerment and how to keep boundaries, which is what Kerry Washington is. She's just phenomenal to watch with keeping boundaries and uh, holding her belief and stance. Okay. All right. So that's Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. Did you see anything else? I did finish Magicians. It was their last season. I don't know if they were cut unexpectedly or what, but I yeah, was... Yeah, I think, I think I shared with you the news a couple months it... back, and you were, like, shocked and devastated. I, I think they finished filming the season, and then they found out after the fact, like, in between seasons, that they got axed, if I remember correctly. That really upsets me then because you can tell that it's it's not a complete conclusion. It's mm, not complete. Mm. And the thing is, I, I don't know what... This show is a little all over the place in that, you know, the first season got produced and released and then they said that there wasn't going to be another season and then I think somebody else picked it up or they got approval and they did season two like two years later or something ridiculous Mm. um so i'm annoyed because i really love grown-up harry potter you know Mm. that makes reference to other pop culture so i'm i'm annoyed if you're a fan you might like the ending it's a little unexpected and a little kooky but i i wish there was another season it doesn't feel feel complete it doesn't feel complete yeah Mm -hmm. okay all right but was it a good season overall it was good. It's not my favorite. Okay. I think the previous season was my favorite. Four. No, I think it's five. The previous season is season five, and the season you just finished was season six? I mean, I'll double check. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, in the meantime, or regardless, I should say, there is a new show that we discovered exists on Hulu, I believe, that might be able to give you some of that, that scratch that itch, satisfy that fix. Um, you were right. Season four was my favorite. Season five just ended. There will be no season six. 
Gotcha, gotcha. What's the name of that show that we discovered about witches? It's like an alternate history kind of thing. I'll look it up. I saw the trailer and I was like, oh my god, I need that in my life. Yeah, it's so, something it's about like, Salem. Something colon, something of Salem, if I remember correctly. So that is Motherland uh, Fort Salem. Yeah, so that sounds kind of cool, and hopefully that'll scratch that itch as well. Was there anything else that you uh, saw that you wanted to talk about? Nope. All right. Then that ends your week in review, and let's move on to our week in review. We saw three movies that we caught up with to talk about, and we finally rented. The first one was Jumanji The Next Level which is a direct sequel to Welcome to the Jungle, which in itself is a pseudo-sequel to the 1995 Robin Williams film. So as I understand it, this one's basically about one of the friends feeling kind of down, and he decides to go back into the video game that was destroyed in Welcome to the Jungle, and his friends are looking for him, and they get sucked back into the video game as well to try to get him out. And in the process... Who's uh, that? That character's grandpa, played by Danny DeVito, and and Danny DeVito's former business partner, played by Danny Glover, also gets sucked into the game. And of course, you know, hilarity and madness ensue. There is a new villain, a new plot for in the video game. This time, starring the guy the who, hound. yeah, the guy who played the hound. <laughs> In Great Game of Thrones, I'm doing him a disservice by not remembering his name. I'm really sorry because he's a cool guy. I hope he doesn't get stuck in roles like this where he's like always got to be hound-like, though, because <laughs> I'm sure he's capable of more. But uh, what'd you think of the next level, Shanna? I just thought it was a lot of fun. I, I didn't think very much of it. I liked seeing the hound. It was funny that he was like downplayed a little bit from game of thrones but still kind of the same guy you Mm. know uh they didn't do much to change his who he's played before Mm -hmm. you know yeah Um, they kind of just went with what what existed i i liked the characters i liked seeing the characters i liked seeing colin hanks again uh you know it was just funny stuff and i really appreciate what i really appreciate about this film is how good they have to be to act like different people because something they discover in the game is how to switch characters. You're talking about the actors. Yeah. Like uh, Dwayne Johnson, Karen Gillan, and Kevin Hart. And and Jack Black. And Jack Black, yes. Yeah. Yes. And so the you know, they're the they're the video game characters and then the the actual characters we have in the movie, the high school just fresh into college kids. And the two business partners, they get to be those characters. And so the the video game actors are switching between, you know, portraying different characters. And I think that that's really hard work, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree that Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart... Was it Kevin Hart or Jack Black that I was talking about before? Maybe it was Jack Black. I think that they are kind of underrated in their skills as actors because you're right i think that they do what they do very well i think kevin hart is also pretty awesome in this Mm. honestly every single thing that matters anything that is you know significant to a or resembles a story element to this movie is so 
poorly constructed or makes no sense or is just absolutely like ridiculous from a writing perspective that like all you have left is the fun stuff right and yeah. it, and there is fun to be had in the movie but it's not as well written a movie as the previous one and i had my issues with the previous one i mean it was it was kind of nonsensical the the original premise that this board game is able to somehow transform into a video game and in a world where PS4 exists, it chooses to turn into a cartridge game, of all things. But yeah, the next level is is worse. Because now all of a sudden the game has a new plot for some reason. New characters. And none of it makes sense. None of it's explained. There's no reason for any of it to happen at all that we're given. So uh, I wasn't a fan of this actually i didn't like it much and it looked like they're blatantly trying to set up a third film which is like okay whatever uh so i gave jumanji the next level a four out of ten did you have any final thoughts or or score you'd like to give it no i think you're you're valid in what you're saying and i think i've you know like i said it was a fun film uh i would maybe say a five and a half five and a half okay Five and three quarters? Yeah, yeah, some of that. 5.7, eight stars. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's Jumanji, the next level. You know what else we caught up with? Motherless Brooklyn, a movie that you oh, were looking yes. forward to from the fall. That was the other thing with Edward Norton as a man with Tourette syndrome. He's trying to find out what it is his boss was into. His boss is a private investigator played by Bruce Willis. He ends up getting shot and killed. And so, yeah, basically Edward Norton's pulling this thread trying to figure out what what's up. And it also stars Bobby Cannavale, Ethan, Ethan Suplee, and Alec Baldwin. Shanna, you were probably the most excited about this movie when it first came out. What did you think of Motherless Brooklyn? I think I was more excited about this film. So when I got to see it, I was less excited about the film. I had a hard time connecting with it. And I didn't have a problem with performances. I guess I just had a problem with the story. It was a little too long. Sometimes it was confusing. Hmm. I, I think I had solved the mystery before they even gave a hint at the mystery. You know how sometimes they have like a red herring? Yeah. Is that what it's called? Sure. And you you think it's going to go one direction, but it's actually going the other direction. So I actually foresaw that they were going to red herring us and figured out what it's actually going to be before they even showed it. So I think it was, I think it, it, it needed better writing. It certainly wasn't a performance issue. Hmm. I think that this is not the kind of mystery that, is what one would call exciting or thrilling. It has a very slow and deliberate pace about it. It, It's a two and a half hour movie, and I think it's fair to question whether or not this required two and a half hours or, or if the story could have been told a little bit more economically. I think Edward Norton is great in it, and he's an interesting creator. He directed this film, 
It is based on a novel that is set, I think, in the 90s, if I remember correctly, but he decided to set it even further in the past, in, like, 1940s, before even Central Park existed. I think that adds a a very interesting flavor to the movie, as well as kind of call back to these, you know, private dick films of that era, which is cool. So I, I think it's an interesting film. I think it has a lot of interesting stuff it's doing creatively, but it's not a knockout of the park sort of thing. And, and I think even the resolution, I think the journey is more interesting than the actual the result of the whole mystery. I don't think that the, the answers are as interesting as the journey to get to the answers, if that makes sense. Yeah, I remember you said that when we spoke about it after watching it, and I I agree with you. Yeah. There's not much else I have to say about the film. So what would you give the film? I'd maybe give it a four. Ooh, ouch. I give it a six out of ten. And lastly, we saw Ford v. Ferrari, a movie that we considered watching back in the fall, but put it on kind of the back burner, and then all of a sudden this thing was nominated for an Oscar, and we're like, well, I guess we should see it. And we eventually did get around to seeing it the past week or so. The James Mangold racing car drama that kind of depicts this rivalry between uh, the Italian company Ferrari and the American Ford Motor Company. It stars Matt Damon and... Christian Bale. Christian Bale's the driver that's hired. Matt Damon's kind of the go-between between Ford Motor Company and Christian Bale's character, trying to figure out how they can develop a car that can actually race and, and, and be fast. Shanna, what did you think of Ford v. Ferrari? Was this an oversight on our part in the fall, or do you think eh, it was all right? I think it would have been nice to have seen it on the big screen, given that, you know, there's a lot of racing happening and there's a lot of you're either really close or you're way back. Mm. So there's some really beautiful shots like Christian Bale's character and his son. They're sitting on the tarmac and it has the most beautiful, you know, twilighty look to the sky behind them and. I think that would have been nice to see in big picture form. I'm realizing how badly we need a bigger TV, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It would be nice to have a bigger TV uh, one day. But, you know, otherwise I don't think we need, I don't feel bad about not rushing over to go see it. What did you like about it? Well, I I like the cinematography. They got nominated for cinematography, I think. And I totally see why. There's these beautiful shots that are happening with uh, lighting kind of adding something to the film. Uh, We know that in the trailer, the two main characters have a scuffle. And at the end of their scuffle, they're both just lying there. And there's this fantastic room lighting on Matt Damon's nose and forehead and it's just it doesn't have to be there it doesn't have to be there but it is and it's just beautiful and just really stunning and gives you pause during Mm. that film during their pause so Mm -hmm. I think the cinematography is very effective yeah you know there's a rain shot during the race and uh that looks really good really terrifying and like I said the twilight type sky it shows up i think twice Mm -hmm. and then at some point they're racing in a sort of deserty 
Texas kind of place. And yeah. The art and the oranges that really pop from there are just, it's just gorgeous. So it's very rich colors. The story was fine. Now that I've gone on and on about the cinematography, the story was fine. Told really well. They did a fine film. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think this is a good film, but not a great film. And I certainly don't think it's one of the best films of it's the year. It's probably the best race film we've got so far. Well, you haven't seen Ron Howard's Rush, which was which surprised me how good it is, and and this half of the film is basically the race, right? And that's probably where the film really pops for me on a plot perspective. It, it gets more interesting. I think the the first half isn't isn't as well done as the second half. I think the first half is all about these people being hired essentially and developing things, but they don't really get into like, they don't make the development of the car and solving of the problems an element of the plot. Really? It's like, well, this needs to be fixed. This needs to be fixed. This needs to be fixed. We know what we're doing. We'll fix it up right now. And then the next scene it's fixed. Never, never. It's never about the nuts and bolts of problem solving to get to where they need to be right to 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 have the ingenuity and i think the uh, demonstrating the ingenuity would have been more interesting yes i agree i i don't know i get a a tickle from this film that oh when you're doing a racing car it's 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 very specific anatomy yes and i wish i knew more about that anatomy sure yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think that's probably the weakness of the film. But James Mangold is a pretty a fairly solid director. I'm a fan of Walk the Line. I'm a fan of his Wolverine films. He's done some pretty darn good stuff for quite some time. This is the kind of movie your dad would like. This is the kind of movie that uh, the b- baby boomers would love. Mm. You know, uh, hell, they might even remember when some of this happened. But I don't think it's a great film. And I have seen people recently name it like the best film of the year over things like Knives Out, 1917, Parasite, Marriage Story. And I think that's absurd because it just doesn't have any of the complexity or the intrigue or any of the substance that those other films have. Yeah. So I give the film a probably a seven out of ten. How about you? It's it's probably a six. Yeah. I know that's lower than yours, but you know I really wanted to see more of the mechanics, like like who made the pieces, you know, and and who were those guys? I want to see those guys. I don't want to necessarily just see our main two characters, you know, all the time, mm. because there was definitely more people involved in that event. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's Ford V Ferrari. And now it's time to move on to the main event and our review of Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Ça fait des années que je rêve de faire ça. Mourir. Courir. Vous allez devoir la peindre sans qu'elle sache. Elle pense que vous êtes une compagne de promenade pour quelques jours. Que savez-vous de mon futur mariage Rien. C'est tout ce que j'en sais aussi. 
Quand allez-vous vous marier Je ne sais pas si je vais me marier. C'est parce que vous pouvez choisir que vous ne me comprenez pas. Je vous comprends. Quand vous êtes embarrassé, vous mordez vos lèvres. Vraiment Quand vous êtes troublé, vous respirez par la bouche. Combien de temps restez-vous Je ne sais pas. J'ai un nouveau sentiment. Le regret. Quel en est le titre Portrait de la jeune fille en feu. And that's from the trailer to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The premise of Portrait of a Lady on Fire is on an isolated island in Brittany at the end of the 18th century, a female painter is obliged to paint a wedding portrait of a young woman. That is in secret, actually, as a matter of fact. Uh, this is directed by Celine Siama. It's a French film that stars Noemi Merlon, Adele Hanel, and Luana Bahrami. Apologies if that was uh, my best attempts. We're still butchering the names, but there you go. Uh, this is a movie that was widely praised, ended up being on a lot of top 10 of the year lists, was nominated for one Golden Globe and 124 other nominations, won 43 awards. This thing was just showered in acclaim. And so the question becomes, Shanna, since we start off with talking about what we liked about a movie first and then move on to what we didn't like about a movie, then have a more spoiler-filled discussion, I want to start with you on this question. Did the film live up to all that acclaim? And what did you like about it? I think it lives up to that acclaim. I think there is something very potent and beautiful about this film. I loved the cinematography. There was just something so delicious about the lighting in this film. When I heard the title of the film, I thought that we were going to be dealing with some very, very tense drama. And I didn't feel like that's what we were dealing with, which I really appreciated. I felt like we were just following these these women. It wasn't just the two lovers, but it also included a another woman on her journey through womanhood. And I just really loved being along for the ride. I thought that this was a very loving relationship. I thought that there were some very interesting haunting elements to the story. Uh, or rather featured in this film and I just thought that this was a film all about women and love for women for women. That cinematography that you spoke to is by Claire Mathon who is also credited as having done the films uh, Atlantics, My Keen and Stranger by the Lake. Um, as well as several other films. I'm not sure I have seen any of the other films that 
she has uh, worked on. But I agree that the cinematography in this film is is quite lovely. I just want to take a bath in all the skin tones. Like, it's that beautifully lit. Well, and it's interesting that you particular speak to the lighting in it because I think most of the lighting, it's like the scenes are lit by a nearby fireplace or what have you, you know, by firelight. Well, it's all natural light. Mm-hmm. Naturally occurring light. What else did you like about it? If you love the theme of romances that are not able to be forever then this is a good film for you to watch is that a spoiler well you know it's I, the 1800s I, I, I so i feel like it's okay. not i don't think it's a spoiler because of the how the movie starts okay, okay. so the movie starts in the future the painter is teaching a class and she's telling the story of of what uh, happened in the past that inspired this painting that's discovered by one of her teachers or one of her students i mean right if you if you think about that and then compound on top of it the time that we're talking about which is 18th century france you know I think it's reasonable to extrapolate certain conclusions. Here's what's interesting about this movie. Like, you hear 18th century, you hear France, right? You see, your, you hear foreign language. Uh, you think it's going to be really stodgy and really dry and Is fairly it? boring, right? No. And it's none of those things, right? I think a lot of people would assume those things. Why would they assume that? Because it's not contemporary. It's not in English, right? And so a lot of people assume if it's a period, you know, costume drama, it's going to be all stuffy and, and boring. And well, they obviously have not seen The Favourite or Sherlock Holmes or well, anything. Again, Sherlock Holmes is in English, but, and, and so is The Favourite. No. But Well, what, fine. You, get, you win. What I'm trying to say is this, that's one of the interesting uh, things about this movie, right? Is it's never boring or, or dry, it's a really engaging film. It's a really engaging story. And, and I've heard, so after watching this movie, I listened to a couple discussions about it to try to help kind of make more concrete my thoughts and, and, and stuff and see if there's anything else that I didn't really think about or impress upon. And one of the things that I, I heard was this general impression of how political the movie is, how, like... Uh, it has so much going on under the surface. Like, take for example, you said something about, I think, men in the movie or, like, about it being a feminist movie in some way. Well, I said it honors women. For women, honors women. by women, for women who love other women. So what's interesting is how little men have a physical presence in the movie but they also have a looming presence throughout the film, right? You only see men in the beginning and the end of the film, pretty much. But It's quite lovely, but actually. The entire premise of the film is predicated on, on a male, in a way, right? And a woman's expectations. And You mean what's expected <clears throat> of a woman? Yes, in those times. And also, there's a supporting character 
that we can get into in spoilers who has a subplot that is like hugely at the result of a male presence but we never see the male in it right we even see women gathering together to sing yeah and chant at the fireside it's beautiful yeah so it's kind of interesting in that 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 regard how uh it's 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 just kind of subtle right like people aren't like banging their fists and speaking in loud proclamations beating the point of the movie home to you it's all like it's all in the background and the in the premise that sets up the film which i think is is kind of cool and interesting but also i appreciate how it's a kind of a slow progression this uh, as it should be what happens between this person who's posing as a what is she a uh, a, a, a companion but is secretly studying the other to paint her and and the person who is the subject of this what does it feel like what is it like when you are being studied and you don't you don't know on the outset why but you notice this person staring at you a lot um, what does that feel like? What does that make you think? What is, what does it stir inside you? I think that's a really good point. I think that's interesting to think about. I didn't quite think about that because I knew going into it, it was going to be a lesbian film. So, mm. um, had I not known it was a lesbian film, I think it would have. I would have interpreted it differently. Really. That that part of it that you've just talked about, yeah. Yeah. How do you think you would have interpreted it? I guess I would be wondering more about what the subject woman... What is her name? Uh, the, the character herself? Yeah. Her name is... The one being painted. Heloise. Eloise. So I, I would be thinking more about Eloise and what does she think of all of this and... I'm trying to figure out how she's feeling because, of course, everything is from the other character's perspective. What is her name? Right, right. Marianne. Marianne. And so it's all from her perspective. And we we don't really see anything or much from Eloise's perspective. We're constantly in Marianne's mind. So that means that, you know, we're privy to visions that she has as any artist does especially when they're studying a particular subject so hard there'll be these moments where she's walking in the house and all of a sudden she'll see this haunting image of marianne her future in a wedding dress and it's just Mm. it's it's so haunting because one minute she's there and the next minute she's not it's imagine a projection being shone and and then gone. Right, know? right, right. Yeah, it, it's probably worth noting that the entire reason why this painting and this venture is even in, endeavored is because, like, it's, I guess, tradition or something that when a woman is going to be married off to kind of help, like, solidify that, her portrait is painted. I, I don't know if it's a, a class sort of status thing or, or what. Well, there's no photography in this time, so the portrait is taken 
to show the future spouse. Okay. Oh, okay. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. So, like, Heloise has been resisting her portrait being completed from other painters in the past because, like, the proceedings, like, the wedding can't, the marriage can't proceed until this uh, portrait is completed. Yes, yes. So uh, I thought just parenthetically it's important to kind of explain and illustrate that. I I thought I think that's all very interesting. I think it's also like really interesting how well the movie depicts the challenge, like the challenges of back then, like having to try to paint somebody from memory. Like you just spent uh, a couple hours in the day. Now you have to rush over, try to remember and try to, also uh, translate through your hand into a brush a particular part of that person that you had just studied, you know, and do it all from memory as best as possible and still, like, be accurate in, in capturing who that person is. Well, and I like that this movie starts with art students, um, painter students specifically, mm-hmm. because you get a sense of, like, well, you don't just... Sure, some people have talent, but you don't just start with the skills. Uh-huh. You have to hone in your skills while just watching a person. The person's mm. right there, and you have to hone your skills. So I think you're right. It's very difficult to actually paint someone if they're not physically sitting for you right there in the room. Right. And, you know, never mind structure, you've got lighting on the person too, and you've got rapport with the person as well. Like, you need all these different elements, and I'm glad that they showed the technical difficulty that one might be coming across during a painting, but then, like, as she's doing little sketches that she's hidden, she's hidden some paper, you know, in one of her pockets or so pretend pockets because this is the 1800s she has to pull it out and secretly do it while she's right there she's seen her hands do something beautiful and she can't just take a little snapshot you know um even though she's good at what she does it it's still better to keep watching the person's body because when you're moving your eyes from the subject to the paper it's you lose something well, and to that point, compound on top of it, it really illustrates or has this great aspect to it about studying each other, right? Like it, it, it kind of comes down to a scene where where like two characters are talking about how they physically behave when their body in certain, language yes body yeah. language in relation to certain emotions or thoughts or feelings and um th- that's a very interesting scene and i've heard it even articulated that from an actress perspective it's really quite something because you only have on the page uh, another character describing to you what you just did and you have to create this entire arc throughout the the story that illustrates these behaviors that leads up to that moment, you know, and and you're mimicking those behaviors right before they're called out, too. I think that there's a lot of things that, like, are very easy to take for granted or not even think about and appreciate in this film, little, a lot of little things. Uh, I also find it interesting how memory is a, a recurring theme throughout the movie. Did you notice that? 
Um, I think you need to elaborate. Well, I'll, I'll do my best because I've only seen the movie once and it was a few days ago. But there are several moments. First of all, you got the entire premise of the movie is, is predicated on one person's memory of another, right? And having to recreate based on that memory, right? But you also have like several other moments throughout the movie in conversation where they talk about remembering the other or or um, talking about the idea of of memory as it pertains to certain things and and one character don't want to get into spoilers but there is a scene where the two characters are lying together and the the concept of memory comes up that plays into the end of the film do you know what i mean of course I know what you mean. That's okay. why I'm barely saying anything. Okay, okay, because okay. Because I'm like, we should move to spoilers. Okay, really, fair truly. enough. Fair enough. So then why don't we talk about, was there, first of all, anything that you didn't like, anything that didn't sit right, anything that after thinking about it uh, was not one of the movie's strengths? What was the bad about the movie? I can't really think of any bads about the movie, but I will say that I'm a straight person. I'm a straight white person, and there's probably things that I'm not able to pick up on. Mm -hmm. And for that, I'm sorry. And this is what I've got to present. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I'm probably even more limited being a white heterosexual male. But even with my limitations, I didn't find really any issues with the film do i think it's like the masterpiece that many are claiming it to be i don't know about that what i do think it's a great film though i think it's one of the best love stories ever told in the world yes okay (laughs) that's fair i mean i i can't really make a craft an argument against that it's not it's not underwhelming it's not uninteresting it's solid it's very well crafted and and done yeah it's 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 i i don't have any flaws with it so why don't we get into spoilers and final thoughts uh for those who haven't seen the film what would you rate the film out of 10 i i think i would go for an eight and a half Eight and a half. Maybe a nine. I'm kind of like teeter-tottering. Okay. And obviously the the good outweighs the bad. We didn't really have anything bad to speak of. In this case, I would say it's an eight out of ten myself. Mm-hmm. Probably just shy of the exalted masterpiece status. So, yeah. Beyond that, I don't have much more to say without getting into spoilers. So if you haven't seen Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire yet, hop on to Hulu, do so. We definitely recommend it. You have all the time in the world being in a quarantine, so why the heck not? Skip ahead from here on to film faves because we're going to get into spoilers for Portrait of a Lady on Fire now. Okay, so... Why, Shannon, why don't you go first? Why don't you talk about whatever it is that you really wanted to speak to that you appreciated or what have you? So what I mentioned earlier was that I love, you know, the relationships between the woman in this movie, not just the intimate love relationship, but the platonic ones, too. Mm. We have the third female character in this film, and her name is 
Sophie. Sophie. We have this third character, Sophie, who, you know, manages the home, the house, does all the work, the cooking, the cleaning, etc. And it turns out she's pregnant. Sophie is waiting for Eloise's mother to leave on the trip. She's going on a trip to, where was it again? To Milan. Milan, yeah, that's right. Because she's going to speak to the future husband. Yeah. or, Or family. And she's going to have an abortion, have a miscarriage, essentially. Mm. Um, She's going to try and have a miscarriage by herself. She does all these things to try and achieve it. It doesn't work. She goes to someone for help um, who helps take care of it. And I just thought it was really fascinating because Sophie had asked Eloise and... Marianne. Marianne. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. There's too many other names in my head. She had asked them, do, do you want to go with? You know, they had just had their intimate first intimate night together. And then Sophie knocks on the door and says, do you still want to come with? And they go with anyway. And they all together go to this, this, this house where Sophie is going to have the abortion. And later that night, Eloise is inspired and tells Marianne. Uh-huh, okay. To, I'm sorry, it's just... The Afrikaans version is stuck in my head. Okay. And she tells her we have to paint this moment where another woman is helping another woman oh, in this okay. way. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I just thought that that was so beautiful that while she was there, she was inspired about womanhood and being there for each other in that moment, you know. Mm. And I just thought that was really lovely. And she, you know, she doesn't have the skills to paint and record, but she tells her you know, her lover to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I thought that was beautiful. Um, another thing that I really loved was obviously the haunting image, uh, you know, of Eloise about what she's going to look like in her wedding dress. We don't know it's a wedding dress. I mean, I certainly didn't. Right. Because I don't know wedding dress fashion. It looked like a light now, nightgown to me. Like a gorgeous nightgown, yeah. I was like, oh, that's so pretty and of the time. And I know nothing because that was a wedding dress. Right. That we find out later. And... I just love how the image of losing her, a symbolic image of losing her lover is haunting her here and there around the home. And just as soon as we see it in focus, it disappears in such a visually appealing way. Mm. Um, Like I feel like it's, if Scooby-Doo was fine art, this is what the spooks inspectors would look like. Okay. Fair enough. I just couldn't help think about that. Well, it's almost Shakespearean in that sense. I think everything about Sophie's subplot is interesting. Like, first of all, it gives you perspective like, wow, the things that they believed and the things that they had to go through and do to try to abort a pregnancy is really something <laughs> and it's it's actually partially where some of the comedy in the movie comes from and there is some comedy in the film i think it's important to to point out but it's also like the 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 advances that we have made in the past two three hundred years makes women these days lucky <laughs> you know they don't have to hang why... themselves from the rafters yes they don't have, they don't have to run on a beach right. over and over and over and over again right all these kinds of things they uh, don't have to stick some kind of paste into their body i also appreciate how like 
you have a woman of, of, of you know, who's the, the lady of the house. You have someone who's hired, you know, as a painter. And then you have the help, which Sophie seems to be. And Sophie comes to these people and there's not even a discussion about it. These people, these other two women immediately go to work on trying to help her out with her with her issue. I thought that was really interesting. And also how like that and several scenes that proceed put them all on equal ground, which I think that's something that you have to really think about and and be aware and realize like this is not a contemporary story like these none of these people are really equals in terms of status and class and stuff it's kind of a big deal if someone who's a lady of the house is cooking the food or helping a servant of the house with in a, a pregnancy and and so on and so forth i thought that was really kind of cool and interesting too well, and I feel like that's why there's this, it's this honoring of women all around, female mm. relationships all around. Yeah. You know, being there for each other through different womanhood challenges that no one else will understand except other women. I think that's very well said and very cool. Was there anything else aside from the very end, before we get to the very end, that you wanted to speak to that you appreciated about the film? There were little things, little things that I really enjoyed about this film, like when Sophie's canvases, not Sophie, I'm sorry, Marianne's canvases start to float away and no one else, there are like nine men in that freaking boat, maybe seven, and none of them tries to get it for her. And she, she doesn't even ask any of them to. She doesn't to. ask anyone. She, yeah. I don't think she even looks at them. No. They kind of just look at each other and she jumps in and she gets her canvases mm-hmm. and... I just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. But I also like the determination and fighting spirit that she has. I love how Eloise speaks about her sister, how her sister just, you know, I... I, We didn't even talk about the sister at all yet. Well, yeah, it's briefly mentioned that her sister didn't want that life, essentially. Well, it's important to remember, like, she had an older sister. It was her older sister that would have been married off to a noble wife. And um, traditionally, the younger sister is always going to be, like, the, the one on her own. That's why she got sent to, like, a, a convent or something like that at some point she speaks to. And so, like, she didn't... I thought ex- that was her choice. No, no, no. Oh, like, that's okay. apparently, like, what happens. And it's like, you're not even given a choice. This is naturally what's going to happen. You know, it's almost like, of course you're going to go to middle school. This is kind of how it is with the, the younger child, right? And, of course, the older child's going to get married off to, to someone wealthy. Um, apparently, that's how that is. And so she never even expected to be in this situation in the first place. And But she is because her older sibling quote-unquote fell off a cliff the other sibling took her own life because she didn't want she didn't want to be married off yeah i mean i guess that's where there's this politicalness of this movie as well because women are taking control of their own life even if it means ending it yeah no you're i think you're absolutely right there um and something that i caught on to right ahead that a lot of people apparently found very impressive about sophie is in relation to the older sister She's asked, well, how do you know that she didn't just fall? She says, oh, because she didn't cry out. Yeah. 
Because if you're purposely jumping off, you wouldn't scream. You would be too determined to be jumping. Right. You know? Well, you'd it's, be too focused. You you, know you, you scream because you're on surprise, right? I'm terrified. Yeah. Right. And uh, and so that also speaks to Sophie's attention to uh, detail and and intelligence as well. well. It also speaks to her life experience. She's probably mm. been around a lot of different uh, situations. Perhaps, yeah. Can we speak about the very end? Because yeah. I think I haven't liked a very end for a long time. Okay. And this is a very end that I absolutely adore. Okay, so set it up for us. So during, you know, um, Eloise and Marianne's time together, their loving, their intimate time together, she is drawing a little pocket portrait of Eloise so that she can keep that with her because they know that they're going to be separated. They, they have both come to terms with it at different times. One is a little out of step than the other. And Eloise, Eloise says, well, what am I going to have to remember you? Hmm. And Marianne says, well, she says pick a figure, but I suppose she might mean pick a number Yeah, in yeah. a book. Yeah. I thought that that word was weird. It's um, an older usage of the term. Oh, okay then. Well, I wouldn't know. Or it could be due to the translation, but I assume okay. it was just the older usage of the word. Okay, cool. So I thought she's looking for a position. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, she takes this book and she goes to page 28 and she draws a picture of herself. But the way the shot is set up, it makes it look at first like she's actually drawing Eloise's body with her head on it. But because of the placement of the mirror, but what's actually happening is she is drawing her own self. She's just... You see this reflection. To um, to be more specific, uh, help articulate it. She has a hand mirror placed over Heloise's groin to reflect back to her face, so she can she can illustrate her face. Well, I think her body too. She probably sees her body in it as well. Okay, is what I I thought. Okay, it doesn't make sense that she would draw her lover's figure. When she's trying to draw her own figure. But she I thought she was having Heloise stay still, lay still. Well, Am then I I'm, wrong? Not, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's open to interpretation. All right. But, but there we go. And so she draws this, you know, herself onto page 28. And that's all that Eloise has of Marianne. Yeah. And at the very end of the film, we see her going to a gallery. Her being. Marianne is going to a gallery before a show. Yeah. Yeah. Or or the gallery is the show, I think. Yeah, I guess so. And she sees a portrait of Eloise. Yeah, about, Eloise. I don't know how long it is later, but she goes to the, she approaches the portrait and she sees, you know, the first thing she sees is Eloise's face and then Eloise's daughter and she looks back and forth at that. But then she sees Eloise holding a book and Eloise has the page number you can see the page number. It's on page 28. And it's like this honoring of their relationship. Mm-hmm. And then I just, like, I was so satisfied when I saw that because I thought, well, isn't that the most beautiful thing ever? But then there's more <laughs> where she actually sees Eloise at the show, the opera house, you know, sitting across from each other. But there's no way 
Like, uh, when we say across from each other, we're talking about a huge gulf of 100 feet or more. Well, I mean, what is that area called? The balcony. Yeah, so they're each on the balcony, but on opposite ends. Yes. There's no way they could get to each other. It doesn't make sense to get to each other because it would just be more hurt and pain Mm. for that time. And so she's just sitting there watching Eloise and watching Eloise being overcome with emotion and... While doing what? While she's listening to music, which they had bonded about. Right. A particular song, a particular piece. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what was it about that end that was so satisfying for you? Well, I love that you got to see the, the film... Could have ended after the painting reveal. Ah. It could have just ended there. Uh-huh. But it didn't. And so she actually got to see Eloise for real, like, through all these emotions. Yeah. And these very intimate emotions linked to their relationship. So not only did she visually see a painting honoring their relationship, but she saw her in person honoring their relationship. And so it was just really so freaking fantastic and beautiful. So I agree. Yes, all of that very cool. I, one, the thing about the painting is so cool is it's kind of like this. It's this extraordinarily subtle inside fuck you political statement. And it's like, yes, this is this is my life, but also like this is who I am. Yeah. Right. This is who has my heart. Yeah. Right. And the only person who's going to get that is Marianne. Yeah. Right. And, and, and Marianne will see it because she's a painter. Well, I she mean, she will see paintings. Possibly. It's it's not a guarantee in that time, you know, but yeah, there's that chance. Right. And then here's the interesting thing. You say that the movie could have ended there. There is a opinion out there that maybe the movie should have ended there with her saying that she saw Heloise one one last time and that was the time through the art you know and you saw the that page number it could have been the end of the story right there do you feel that the second the quote-unquote second what do you call it sighting yeah sighting of heloise is absolutely necessary i think so because i think it grounds it it's like if she had only seen the painting she will never see her again. Yeah. Who knows where she is? There's no Facebook, you know. But the fact that she physically sees her again, I think, drives the point home that they could never, ever be together in a society, in a law set thing where it doesn't allow women to be with women. It doesn't allow anyone to love whoever they want. Mm. And so I like that it ended there. And I'm probably not articulating it as best as it can be. But it drives the point home. They might see each other, but they always have to be apart because no one um, supported an individual loving another individual no matter what. All right. I think we can end it there. What did you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. And now it's time to move on to Film Faves, a lot of people's favorite part of the podcast where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. Um, In this episode, we'll be 
counting down our favorite LGBTQ plus movies. Why do we do this? Part of the reason is to give you an idea of our taste in movies of particular subjects and and time frames uh, and also though to hopefully expose you to films that you haven't heard of or seen before and to that end we like to share with you whenever a movie is available currently on a subscription service we focus on because there's so many we focus on uh, netflix hulu amazon prime hbo now and disney plus not always is our movies available on the subscription services. Usually they're available to rent on Amazon or something. Uh, but when they are on those services, we will let you know for your ease of, of, of being able to hunt them down. So LGBTQ plus movies. At one point earlier in the review, you had kind of spoken to your limitations as an individual being able to experience these, these, these stories. And I feel that too. And I, it occurred to me, uh, it would have been really great to have been able to have gotten a third voice onto the podcast to guest who is part of the uh, LGBTQ plus community. But unfortunately, by the time uh, it occurred to me that we knew somebody that that would, that would work for that, it was just way too short a notice to be able to schedule it and make it work, unfortunately. But for that purpose, I want to say, first of all, it's very possible that these are the most uh, straight of <laughs> LGBTQ plus tastes that you'll yeah, hear. It's you know, possible. it's very possible. There's a lot We're that very we, sorry. There's a lot that we haven't seen. Like I, I will admit, as much as I keep trying to get the opportunity to, I have yet to be able to see Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I've yet to be able to see Priscilla, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I still want to see Tomboy. Tomboy, another Celine Sciamma, Celine Sciamma film, by the way. Um, so it's a very somewhat narrow scope, but we. Definitely would welcome you to engage with us via email or social media, all the different platforms we'll talk about later on these films and other films that you recommend or love or why some of our picks may not be as good as others even. But uh, with that said, Shanna, I guess I'll throw it to you and ask you, first of all, did you find this list challenging? Did you feel yourself limited in any way? Or was this pretty easy to craft? And then segue into your number 12 favorite. Well, I mean, as we have both stated, I, I hope that my perspective is as respectful as it can be. And I want to try and acknowledge what I can relate to in each movie or see or, or at least point out something that I never thought of before while compiling this list. And that I'm really looking forward to members of the LGBTQ plus A community engaging with us about this list there's a couple movies that i just absolutely adore there's a couple movies that i watch every now and again i even have david lynch in here one of oh. his movies so oh. i just find that that that's really interesting i bet it's not the straight story so my number <laughs> 12 let's just jump on right in most of these films are streamable, which is exciting. Mm. I'm looking at my list, and most of them are on Hulu, oh. with one or two on Netflix. Go Hulu! So I think that we can tell who's really striving here yeah. for inclusivity. Very cool. My number 12 pick is available on Hulu and on Prime. It's Gods and Monsters. It's based on the person's life who 
uh, is it James? James what? James Whale. James Whale that did Frankenstein, Brad of Frankenstein, and you said Showboat? Yes, the Paul Robeson version of Showboat, which is very hard to get, by the way. So not just known for horror, but mostly known for horror. And also Invisible Man. Okay, and then, so here's this story that's uh, just a fictional story about the end of his life where, you know, you've, it's an interesting look at how would he want to die, I suppose? It's, how would he want to go out with the last few days of his life, you know? How would he want to find meaning after everything he's been through? Because he's haunted by his, his war experience. He's haunted by the life Mm -hmm. that he, you know, you, you've shared with me that he did, he was openly gay, but I feel like maybe he wasn't as openly gay as one could be. Probably not. Probably not given the time. Yeah. With the acceptance they deserve. Yeah. So... I, I thought this was a great performance by Ian McKellen. I love Ian McKellen. And I think that this is like his third movie where he is a gay character, right? Because you've got think. you've got Gods and Monsters. And the, the band, band played on. on. What's the third one? Oh, there is another one. I can't remember what it is. But he is gay. So that's pretty cool that he's able to play a gay character as well. So I like this film because it was an interesting idea. It had interesting ideas. I don't want to spoil anything, but it was interesting how uh, he might have wanted his life to end. Hmm. I, in particular, find Brendan Fraser's performance really cool, and I wish we could see more of, of him in performances like this. So I will say that my list probably composes more of dramas than anything else. And surprisingly, most of my picks are available on these streaming subscriptions, which is rare. I think with this particular one, this is the most I've come across in a long time, if not ever, that are available openly right now on streaming uh, platforms. So I'm going to start off with a little-known film that I like a lot that's available on Hulu called Tangerine. It is essentially about this one trans person. She gets out of jail, and she comes back to the block in Los Angeles where she is a hooker. I don't know the the, the verb of it, but uh, where she streetwalks, for lack of a better term, and meets back up with her friend whose name escapes me right now. And she learns within the first couple minutes of the movie that her boyfriend slash pimp has cheated on her. So she goes on a, just like this, this tangent throughout, throughout the city, hunting down who he cheated on and trying to find him. I think his name is Chester. If I remember correctly, (laughs) Something like that? Because that's all she's freaking cursing. Yeah, yeah. All the time. Oh, all the time. All the time. And, you know, the, her friend goes with her for the most part on this journey. And it's a movie that's known for its really low-budget production values. The fact that it was shot... I think it's one of the first movies shot on an iPhone, if I remember correctly. This is back in 2015, by the way. And it's it's very unconventional, very interesting. It follows principally three or four 
different characters. One actually ends up being a customer of these characters, too. And I think it's surprisingly touching, too. I think it'll really kind of surprise you once you get to the end and the degree of vulnerability and and the loyalty that's involved in the movie as well. So I were I think it's worth checking out. It's Tangerine. It's available on Hulu from 2015. My number 11 is not available to stream. Boo. It is The Imitation Game. Oh. Starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kira Knightley. You know, this takes place during World War II, and it's about the real English mathematical genius, Alan Turing, who's trying to crack the the German code that they use to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. And he's he's it's a whole bunch of mathematicians trying to figure out this code, and he's essentially trying to make a computer in a way. Yes, I can't remember what it's called, like the Turing device or something i can't remember what it ends up being called but it's a very famous thing yeah and so what what we get to see is absolute genius who helped helped towards ending world war Two because he did crack the 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 code they were able to decipher the messages right and how badly you know how badly he was treated how He's because this war he's war hero and they treat him horribly because he's gay. Yep. And they punish him and they put him in prison and all this jazz. They discover he's gay. Yeah, eventually. and it's just this this horrible mistreatment. So mm. but I love watching his mind work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great pick. You might hear more about that one. Uh, from me as well, but my number eleven is actually available on HBO now. Is from 2010. It is The Kids Are All Right, starring uh, Julianne Moore, Annette Benning, and Mark Ruffalo. Oh, as well as Josh Hutchinson and Mia Wasikowska. And it's essentially about these two teenagers who are raised by two women, a lesbian couple, married couple, very loving, very funny, warm couple. And how the teen, one of the teenagers gets really curious to learn about his biological father and hunts him down, essentially. And what happens when that biological father is introduced into the mix? That, that guy, by the way, is played wonderfully by Mark Ruffalo in one of his best performances of his career. I think, actually, the performances across the board are spectacular by the adults in particular, uh, Julianne Moore. Annette Benning is so wonderful in this film. Love her, Annette. There's. <sighs> I think Annette Benning was my favorite part of that film. So many wonderful human moments throughout this comedy drama that, that's basically made it stick with me. And I come back to it every once in a while as well when the opportunity arises. Anyway, that's available right now. On HBO Now, if you missed it, it was a Best Picture nominee, too, back then. Uh, I think maybe the first year where they opened it up. Maybe the second year. At any rate, uh, check it out on HBO Now. That's Kids Are All Right. My number 10 is available on Hulu. It is also Tangerine. 
Oh, really? I really love this movie. Yeah, so you've explained it already. uh, So I'll just talk a little bit about what I love about it. I I, I love that vulnerableness that happens at the end. I, I love that care and love for one another that occurs. But I also really love the freaking drama that (laughs) part of me is like, why should they have to go? They shouldn't have to go through this much drama. No one should have to go through this much drama in one day, you know. But man, I love going along for the ride. (laughs) (laughs) I love watching her determination. It's just I love watching both of their determinations. So we've got I just got to find the characters names here. Uh, Cindy, I love Cindy's determination to find Chester and the one that Chester cheated with. I I love Alexandra. I mean, I could watch that 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 woman all day. Seriously, yeah. yeah. Like, she was just very powerful on screen. Very powerful on screen presence. And I like that it's full of unknowns and also actual trans people too. It adds so much legitimacy to the story. And, like, it helps not having the distraction of recognizing people, even though yeah. some of these cast members have actually starred in, like, TV shows and stuff, I just, too. I just want the story, yeah. you know? So I just, I really loved it, and I really hope, I really wish much success to all these actresses and actors. I, I think that everybody did a great job in this film, and I just love the ripple effects. Mm-hmm. of everyone's actions you know really briefly did you like that film better than sean baker's next film a florida project oh well now we're just comparing i was more on the edge of my seat with this film mm-hmm. because i didn't know what cindy was capable of right you know she just got out of prison i don't know why she went to prison for most of the movie and so i wasn't sure what was going to happen to chester i was like well you know whatever happens to chester if he cheated whatever you know it's going to happen that i support you cindy but what are you going to do so like you know and i love how alexandra warns her like if there's going to be drama i'm out and yeah she states a boundary there's drama she is out. Yeah. And so I guess I'm not very good with boundaries, but so when I see people stating their boundary and then following through, I'm like, oh my God, you're my hero. So It sounds like you enjoyed this one more. Yeah, I think I enjoyed this one more. I love Florida Project, but I think this one was definitely very interesting. All right, very cool. My number 10 favorite LGBTQ plus movie is a French film, Blue is the Warmest Color, available on Netflix from 2013. This is a film I think I talked about last year as it was named one of my 10 best love stories of the decade, if you'll recall. It stars Lea Sadeau, who you would not believe three years later would be in a James Bond movie. And also I'm going to get her name here because it is hard for me to remember. Adele Exachopoulos. And again, if I butcher it, I apologize. It's okay to say that you did butcher it. Okay. (laughs) You don't have to say if I butchered it. We all know that we butchered it. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, no, this is a movie that I like quite a bit. I know it's a little bit of a marathon at three hours. It's a love story. It's a French love story. But it's totally worth it, I think. And I think Adele really carries the film being, I don't know, it feels like it might be one of her first roles 
but she is exceptional in it. Leia Sado is great in it. They, this relationship has always stuck with me. And as we proved when we watched it together, there's so much conversation that can come from this film as well. There's so much you could discuss in how how the story is handled and and who it's handled by and all the little details about the characters and other things. So I quite enjoy it. Blue is the Warmest Color on Netflix from 2013. My number eight is available on Hulu because Hulu is awesome. Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman from 2017. So this is about the psychologist William Marston and his polyamorous relationship with his wife his wife being Rebecca Hall, and then with their mistress, and uh, how that would inspire his creation of the superhero Wonder Woman. I I love this movie because I I don't feel like there's enough films that deal with polyamorous, polyamorous relationships, with the relationship happening, like everybody's in the same room all the time kind of thing. Like I watched a little bit of Big Love and I feel like it's just really separate. Mm. How, you know, and it's a system. It's all centered on the male yeah, in that one? Yeah, okay. And in this one, it's very empowering for the woman, I feel, unless I'm missing something. And I just, I really love the love that they have for each other. and The two women? How the all three of them mm. and how the relationship progresses and how the relationship you know takes a break because hey you guys aren't listening to me and now we're going to come back and we're going to sort things out and you know there's a little bit of tension from society's nonsense but you know everything works out in this film and i really like it fantastic i love that movie didn't quite make my list but i do love that movie my number nine is Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. It is the first movie on my list that is not available on a streaming subscription service. You might be able to rent it, though, somewhere. But it's just one of those that's like I'm crafting the list and, and I, it comes across me. And I'm like, oh, yeah, because while it is a movie about... A group of bank robbers getting basically everything goes wrong with the bank robbing and all of a sudden there's this huge media storm of this holdup with the with the law enforcement and media too but the entire impetus of the entire thing the reason why this happens in the first place is for one person to be able to help his lover get a uh, transition basically transition he's he's trans before the the word was even used and that's that's one thing but it's a whole nother when you consider how much respect these characters are treated and how anybody who even suggests any disrespect largely is shut down in the film Plus, it's just a really powerful film. It's it's very well acted. It's, you know, Al Pacino in his prime. He had a really great streak during this time period. This is a very daring uh, film, a very daring role for him to take on. And it's a great, I don't think enough people remember it. So if you can, I recommend hunting it down. It's Dog Day Afternoon from 1975. My number nine is available on Prime. It's The Handmaiden from 2016. This is about a woman who is hired to be a Japanese 
heiress's handmaiden. Uh, but she's secretly involved in a plot to defraud defraud her. Um, is she? This film is so twisty and so terrifying. It's such a mystery story. It's beautiful. It's intriguing. It's it's there's so many things I want to say about it, but it's best to go in cold. Uh, you kind of need to be prepared. There's a there's a lot that happens in this film that will make a lot of people, you know, um, uncomfortable. The heiress's uncle or some family relative, I can't remember what, what the relation is, is a psychopath. So you just need to be aware of that. I'm not not for the faint of heart, let's say. It's not. It's, it's a very difficult film to actually sit with and get through, but it's very rich in its story and in its textures and its visuals. I almost I, I consider that movie, but I couldn't remember it well enough to remember the LGBTQ plus aspect of oh, the story. Yeah, yeah, the relationship is between the handmaiden and the heiress. Okay, it's a thrilling relationship, and that's all I can say because I should shut my mouth and let <laughs> the surprises come as they come. Fair enough. It's a Korean film by which director? Chanwook Park. Oh, Chanwook Park. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And it's written by Sarah Waters. Excellent pick. Excellent pick. My favorite LGBTQ plus film is one that surprisingly was on your list as well. I think we saw it in the theater, The Imitation Game from 2014, a film I thought is quite riveting. I think should be better remembered than it actually is. I don't even think it got recognized to the extent that it should be. I think that... This was kind of the rise of Benedict Cumberbatch, right? He had Sherlock going on, but he started around this period to get some film roles too and become get kind of wider appeal and wider awareness outside of that, uh, I believe. And that's this is one of the first things I saw him in as well. And I thought he was just absolutely fantastic. And of course, it is, there is a degree of spoilers for real life that that factors in here because. If I remember correctly, while he is in a relationship with Kira Knightley to hide the fact that he is gay, right? What's the, the tragedy of the entire situation is this guy who was not only incredibly pivotal in the war effort, uh, the English war effort, but also was one of the most brilliant minds that made so many things that we take for granted today possible the way that he was treated and shamed and and uh, I mean I, I, if I remember correctly I've only seen the movie once but if I remember correctly he doesn't have the greatest of self-esteem about him who he is right and he's made the feel the way he is because of society and he's also treated horribly too and to hear that one of our biggest heroes in science and in in war efforts was treated so poorly is is a great tragedy but don't think that this is a depressing movie necessarily i think it's a riveting very interesting film the imitation game worth hunting down my number seven is dog days afternoon Ah, did i I have a feeling it'd be on your list yeah i like how we're kind of one apart with our choices Mm. you know you've already spoken about this film i loved it for its determination i love Al Pacino's determination in here. I loved his performance. I love the story. I love how people supported him. And I love the cause that he was fighting for. 
When you say people supported him, you're talking about the crowds, the right? The crowd supported him. Right. Yeah. I don't think that the crowds necessarily knew his motivation. They didn't motivation. know the reason. I mean, they jumped on because I guess he he was saying, what did he say? Like Attica? Yeah, he was referring to, he was making reference to essentially police brutality that had occurred two years before. Yeah. But he was like this icon uh, to them of, you know, the little guy up against the man. Yeah, and you know what? It doesn't matter who represents that for you, does it? But it's kind of cool that it's someone who is very supportive of trans. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. My next favorite LGBTQ film is available on Hulu. It is a very little-known film from 2018, I believe. It is called The Duke of Burgundy. And it's... So let me set set this thing up. Because I went into this film cold, not knowing really what it was about. Just having it greatly recommended by another podcast I have listened to for years. And essentially... A young woman we follow goes from a brook to a house. She knocks on the door, and it appears that she works for this this woman. And so she's kind of scolded and ordered around the house, cleaning this, cleaning that, and and really told what's what when she doesn't do something exactly right. And it turns out that this is actually a BDSM relationship between uh, two people who kind of came together from academic interests. Like, they share academic interests. The the title of the movie refers to a type of butterfly, and I guess they study butterflies, essentially. At any rate, this is a sumptuous, sensual, uh, somewhat erotic, just absolutely gorgeous film that is shot in ways that nobody shoots today it's very reminiscent of kind of a late 60s early 70s british uh, or european form of shooting and there's so much stuff that you could mine i could talk for a half an hour in fact we talked quite a bit after seeing this movie about the relationship and some of the imagery and and what it all means and it's just a fantastic film that more people should check out it's the duke of burgundy from actually 2014 i corrected myself on hulu my number six is available on prime it's the birdcage a cabaret owner and his drag queen as described by imdb agree to put up a full straight front so that their son can introduce them to his fiance's right-wing moralistic parents. The reason I love this film is because of who it stars. It stars Robin Williams, Gene Hackman, Nathan Lane, Diane Weist. You've got Hank Azaria mm. as well. I mm-hmm. especially love seeing him because, you know, obviously I know his voice from Simpsons. And so seeing him in actual person <laughs> with his amazing voice is a real treat for me. The voice, by the way, that he uses, I listened to an interview with him recently. He based on his grandma, I believe. Oh, really? If I'm not mistaken, that's who he was talking about. Yeah. Mo? He based it on... No, no, no. What the voice he about? uses in the birdcage, Oh, man. in the birdcage. Okay, yeah, not okay. Mo. What the fuck? Listen, this man has a lot of voices, okay? <laughs> <It's> true, yeah. <laughs> so I just, I love the comedy of, of all those actors. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I love Diane Weiss too. So it was really fun. Very cool. 
So we are at the halfway mark, and my sixth favorite LGBTQ plus film is Beginners from 2011 by Mike Mills. I believe he's also the director of 20th Century Women. I love that film. That movie couldn't have qualified, could it? That's a great movie. I don't think no, so. No, there isn't a, Darn. an LGBTQA plus anything. No, I guess not. Anyway, so, but Beginners does. It's it's well known for its premise, which is Christopher Plummer plays this elderly guy in his 70s or 80, 80s, and, you know, he's a widow, and he comes out as gay after in his life for like 40 plus years married to this woman. He is living life as who he truly feels he is. Um, of course, he is a supporting character. He is Ewan McGregor's father in the story. And, and Ewan McGregor's character is kind of dealing with some stuff. He's very disaffected. And his, his father inadvertently and Melanie Laurent's character, who she's great in this film as well, Kind of help uh, achieve some character growth in him. But anyway, this is a really interesting story, sort of based on, I think, Mike Mills' father, if I remember correctly. I don't want to spread things that aren't true, but I think this is quasi-autobiographical in a, in, a, in a way. But it's also got really interesting visuals. It's funny. It's very enjoyable. Uh, it's probably one of the lighter films on my list, actually, that anybody could could kind of access. And it is available on Amazon Prime. That's Beginners from 2011. My next film is The Duke of Burgundy. My God, <laughs> you're kidding me. That's really funny. Wow. Um, so you've spoken about this film. I like doing my list like this. <laughs> well, you, love, I've done all the heavy lifting. Yeah, you've done all the heavy lifting. Gotcha. I love the relationship in this film i love the rich textures the colors the cinematography is what i hope i can do one day as a project it's such an interesting story and what a beautiful one too about a couple trying to do their best for each other mm. you know how sometimes that, that that doesn't work and and how we still love each other afterwards too and try to make things continuously work mm. Excellent point. Absolutely. So my fifth favorite LGBTQ plus film is probably the most controversial on my list. And so give me a moment to explain it. The film choice is As Good As It Gets from 1997. It is available on Netflix. And I understand why this would be controversial because it literally features gay bashing, like a, a gay character is beaten up right but first of all he's not beaten up because he's gay he's beaten up because he walks in on being robbed and here's my defense of the movie on top of that first of all like yes it follows a character who is arguably quite monstrous to everybody around him that's mel melvin played by jack nicholson he's an ocd character he's got a lot of issues but every nasty thing that is every nasty word that is directed at greg kinnear's character comes from someone who is who is considered nasty he's scolded he's frowned upon he's ostracized often by because of the things that he says plus this character is the one who is the impetus of the entire plot right 
because he he's robbed he because he's robbed he loses everything he can't um afford to stay where he lives even he needs time to get himself back on his feet he he asks melvin to take care of his dog during this transition phase he needs to ask for money from his estranged parents so he's kind of the forward momentum of the story ultimately and he's the one that helps create the most growth out of the main character melvin so i think there's a lot of great things to be said about greg kinnear's character in as good as it gets and and the film itself 22 years later uh see what you think it's on netflix it's from 1997 it's my fifth favorite lgbtq plus film my number four is available on netflix it is moonlight i'm glad that's on your list yeah so this is about a young african-american man who grapples with his identity and sexuality while experienced in everyday struggles of childhood adolescence adulthood but to top it all off there are other things he's dealing with too like his drug addicted mother he's getting support from other community members uh his mother's making it further difficult for him people that he goes to school with are making his life more difficult for him than it needs to be it's been a while since i've watched it i don't think i've watched it since cinema but this was a beautiful film, a very powerful film. The performances were amazing. The score. I, the, I was just about to say the score is one of the most beautiful, subtle scores that works so well with what's happening in the film. And the cinematography very much helps the story, tell the story and move the story along. Excellent. Yeah, one of the best films of the decade by far. Absolutely. Uh, my fourth favorite LGBTQ plus film, however, is Booksmart from last year. One of the most underrated films of 2019. One of a handful of films that, for whatever reason, went under many people's radar. It is available on Hulu, by the way. And this film qualifies because while it is mostly about this friendship between two teenage girls who realize that they could have spent their time partying as well as being responsible with their studies, one of the two girls is actually openly gay. And it is is about her, part of her journey is having the guts to approach another girl that she has a crush on, who she thinks is really cool. And also appears to be gay as well. And I think that story, as well as everything else about this film, is handled so cleverly, so smartly, so tastefully, uh, but also is hilarious too. If you haven't seen Booksmart, you're looking for a fun time. I think this is probably going to be the highlight of, of my list for you. Definitely check it out on Hulu. My number three is not available to stream anyway. You'd have to rent it. It is Mahalan Drive by David Lynch. Hmm. It stars Naomi Watts and Laura Harring. And these two, Laura Harring is, has just been in a car accident. She can't remember anything. She's got amnesia. And then 
Naomi Watts' character has just moved to Hollywood. She's an aspiring actress. She wants to become a star. But the two of them try to solve this mystery. Hmm. What happened to the Harring Harring character? Is it Rita Harring? Sorry. Laura Harring. Laura Harring. Her name in the story is Rita. Mm. So Rita and Becky are trying to to find answers. And, you know, it's David Lynch, so nothing's simple. And everything is is really strange and dreamlike. And the relationship between the two of them is very intimate. And uh, things get crazy. So the less I say, the better. The reason I like it is because every time I watch that film, I pick up on something else. Or I interpret it a little differently. I would argue that is just as inaccessible as The Handmaiden for very different reasons. Mm. But brace yourself for a wild, crazy ride. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, you know, if you're a sensitive viewer, watch this one before you watch The Handmaiden. Yes, that is viscerally challenging. Uh, so my third favorite LGBTQ plus movie is Brokeback Mountain. I think like this is a classic at this point. I think it was it was probably like one of those capital G great films even when it came out. And it deserved to be acclaimed as such as one of the best films. That's one of the best films of the, the turn of the century and of its type. The the thing about this film is not only the performances which people have talked to death about, so I don't need to add much about that uh, because they are great by the way especially Heath Ledger he's just achingly beautiful in this film but also how at the time this this film was this statement that love is love it's it's like a cliche at, at this point 15 years later but it really was like it doesn't really matter who you love like everybody should be able to love right and that was and and also on top of that like, I think anybody who has loved or is in love can relate to this story, too, of, of these two two men. It's it's absolutely wonderful, wonderful film by Ain Lee from 2005. If you haven't caught up with it for whatever reason, I strongly recommend checking it out, find, hunting it down somehow. That's Brokeback Mountain. My number two is on Hulu. It is Booksmart. I freaking love this film so freaking much. I love following our main character on her discovery and her experimentation mm. with her sexuality. I, I love um, her friendship with our other main character. And it's just a really beautiful film about this really stressful time in an individual's uh, life. It's one of the most stressful times. Uh, you know, with different relationships, you know, they're both disastrous the first time around. So it's really fun. And watching them party together, watching Lisa Kudra as the mom saying things like, I don't need to know all the words is oh, really relatable and really fun. That's a really good re- recollection because oh, Lisa Kudra and I can't remember who the father is, Will Forte. Uh, they both think that the two best friends are in a relationship together. Yes, and they're not. And it's right. just, they want to be supportive regardless. You know? <laughs> and it's just really funny, no matter how much their daughter tries to tell them, like, we're not in a relationship. They're just, they're painfully supportive. They're just saying, well, we don't care. We love right. you both. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's an awesome yeah. pick. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not surprised that ended up on your list. My second favorite is Bohemian Rhapsody. From 2018, 
Of course, it is about Freddie Mercury and the band Queen. And it, you know, Freddie Mercury was bisexual and he comes out as bisexual to this woman that he who's basically his best friend that he loves dearly and such and i think he even like pays for a place for her to live on his property if i remember correctly because they look out at each other from window well, they to window live nearby. something like that anyway it, it does get into a little bit of his relationship with a man that is toxic but you know, it's it's it was one of the best experiences I had in the movie theater in 2018 as a fan of Freddie Mercury and his life and his work and everything. And he was just so incredibly well embodied by Rami Malek, as was the rest of the, the people who played the band Queen, too. They were incredible. But uh, anyway, I just absolutely adore this movie, I adore that story, and there's nothing much more I could say <laughs> about it, really. Uh, you should check out our review for more about Bohemian Rhapsody, though. So my number one is available on Hulu because Hulu's awesome. It's Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It turns out that it made the top of the list, and I we've spoken a lot about it. Wow, I, really? I guess I love it that much when I started looking at how much I loved all the different movies, yeah. and that's the top one. Wow, fantastic. That is really cool. Uh, that That's surprising and, and very awesome. And before I mention my number one, I should also mention I forgot to say that Bohemian Rhapsody is available on HBO now. So you can check it out there. But my number one film is probably, an, a, again, very much a straight man's number one of LGBT culture, I'm sure. Uh, but it is Philadelphia from 1993, which is available on Netflix. Of course, this is the film about uh, that stars Tom Hanks as a man who is a very successful lawyer. In, in Philadelphia. I was going to say, in some major city. It's Philadelphia. Uh, and he contracts the AIDS virus. He's gay, and he contracts the AIDS virus. And he gets completely shunned by his firm that he was on the way up. And he wants to sue them for wrongful termina- termination. He hires Denzel Washington, who is a homophobe. And see, here's the thing, though. Like, uh, not only is th- this movie extraordinarily heartbreaking and beautiful and and just guaranteed to make me cry with just extraordinary, wonderful performances. But like, you have to remember that this movie helped really shift the cultural needle towards acceptance of, of the LGBTQ plus culture too. This was the movie that was accepted by the mainstream and helped humanize People who not only were homosexual, but also who were suffering from the AIDS virus, which, by the way, like there was a huge epidemic of that not long before this film. So it had to humanize LGBTQ people because of how much fear was and hate was um, generated around them. Right. So like this is this film holds a significance in in pop culture and in the culture at large in helping really move the needle towards being more accepting and 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 um, okay with with the um, gay community and so 
I think that's something to kind of like look back on almost 30 years later and recognize. But for me, it's just also a beautifully told and wonderfully acted story too. And it's one that I've always loved since I was 13 years old. So that is Philadelphia. Check it out on Netflix. But please let us know what your favorite LGBTQ plus movies are. Is there anything that we missed? Anything that we really need to enrich ourselves by checking out and hunting down? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com or you can comment or direct message on social media platforms, The Gibson Review on Facebook or The Gibson 99 on Instagram. See what I did there, Shanna? I kind of like subtly segued a little bit into where you can find us online. Why don't you share with people where people can find you online? You can find me online at Instagram, Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography. And then on our flick chart, my flick chart, it's Spellbinding A. Excellent. I'm also on flick chart at the Gibson 99. And here's the thing, folks. I'm really excited to announce uh, this is the 10th anniversary of the Gibson Review. I think just a month ago we hit our third anniversary of the Movie Lovers. And we're getting a new website. I think by the time you're, this is hitting your ears, I think the new website will have been launched. It's still at thegibsonreview.com, but hopefully when you type in that URL, you'll be directed to a brand spanking new, cleaner, shinier, nicer website. And that's not as dark or as um, shitty <laughs> as the old old one. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. I finally had the means to be able to make it possible. And so go ahead and head on over there. Let me know what you think. It's not probably going to be completely finished, uh, but I'm hoping to be able to get everything all constructed and, and imported over time onto the correct tabs and stuff. And I'll hopefully be talking more about this in future episodes too, what you can find there. Next episode. Let's talk about that. The next episode. I'm very excited for the next episode. Why are you excited about the next episode? Well, because I think we're reviewing Scoob. Yes. We're reviewing Scoob. Uh, pretty shitty that we can't see it in the theater, but we get to watch it online. Yes, it will be available between now and when the next episode hits. We will be reviewing the latest release of Scoob. But also, Film Faves will count down our favorite movies from the 1950s. So keep an eye out for that on Tuesday, May 26th. Until then, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.